Hey, welcome to tonight's show. Uh, we got a great uh, couple guests lined up tonight. Uh, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so. And uh, I, uh, Rhonda Dixon's with me tonight. Henry Ortiz, Community Healer, is going to be here tonight. And uh, welcome. It's a nice 86 degrees going down tonight. Didn't have to have that nasty air conditioner on the background like I usually do again. So I'm really excited about it. I'm with the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, www.californiahaunts.org. This is the California Haunts Radio Show, www.californiahauntsradio.com. And welcome. Can't wait to talk to our new guest. I'm going to have to have to send a quick link out to somebody for the show, for tonight's show, and then we will get on with our show. Let me do this. Give me a second, and I'll bring our guest in. I know there's a link up here somewhere. So let me go ahead and do that, and I will be right with you guys. I didn't want to have to do this, but apparently they lost the link. So let me get this going. Let me get on in there and please be patient with me. And wow. Okay. There we go. Hang on one second. There we go. It's really easy for me to do this and then I'm done. There we go. There we go. Okay. So we're ready to go. Anyway, welcome. I'm going to bring in my guest so we can get started. Hello, Rhonda. Oh, hang on a second. Hi. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. How are you? <laughs> good. It's great to have you. You too. So I'm very excited to be on your show. Um, I'm, I'm a criminal defense lawyer in Los Angeles. I'm looking forward to talking on your show. I am too. I have another guest coming on, um, Henry Ortiz. He works here in Sacramento. He's, he's an activist. He does similar stuff to what you're doing. So I thought he'd be in. You know, he'd, he'd be an extra add-on for for tonight's show. Mm -hmm. So he'll be on shortly. But tell us about your work. You know, and 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 then your your work as an activist, essentially. Well, it's interesting because it started back when I had. Um, so I started as an entertainment lawyer. And then I moved into, um, let me put it this way, the business kind of took a tank in around 2001. And I had a mm -hmm. client that I had named Shaggy, and he was the number one artist of the year. And then everything went boom. And it was, they blamed it on Napster, but actually Napster was the reason Shaggy was successful, basically, because they were going to drop him. The song, It Wasn't Me, wasn't slated to be a single, and it was dropped by two record companies before so it ended up that it was on a make it or break it show. And that's how he 
broke out and became the number one artist of the year. Um, from there, um, things kind of went downhill for a while. I was an NFL agent. I was kind of moving around in different directions. And I had um, started working for a nonprofit and I found very, it was very rewarding to do that. And so I founded a, um, a clinic called Dixon Recovery Institute. And I served a lot of people. It was on 48th and Crenshaw in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And I served a lot of people. And then in 2013, there was some movement where they wanted to shut down a lot of the clinics. And mine was one of them. And the reason why I make a good criminal defense lawyer is because I've been on the other side of the fence. Um, they prosecuted me. And obviously I won. So that experience lets me now I know how it feels to be the defendant in the defense side of the table. And I also know how the prosecutors, I used to work inside of the DA's office too at the um, appellate division. So I do know how people um, get railroaded. And if you don't know the system, it's easy for you to either be really taken advantage of. There are innocent people in jail. Mm -hmm. There are people that they, they have a tendency to over charge people, you know, to rack up huge amounts of time, penalties, and all these different assessments. And DA Gascon is trying to change that. We incarcerate more people in Los Angeles County than many countries do. We have 40% of the state's population in LA County. Why do they tend to overcharge people? They're very zealous. Um, It's a competition thing. And over the years, I used to work for the prosecutor's brief and the California District Attorney's Association. And over the years, they have been very, very active in um, um, politics, you know, in lobbying to -hmm. change the laws to make it easier to convict people, to make it easier to add on things like gun charges and gang enhancements. And all that stuff was basically rolled back. Most a lot of it was rolled back this year by the legislature people the people spoke and said well first of all they spoke so in my case when that got shut down they were trying to redirect the money that's used for substance abuse and they wanted to redirect that into law enforcement and and also send it to kaiser and and blue cross over what happened was they broke the system Um, because when they shut down 200 clinics there's 600 clinics in the state they shut down 400 statewide 200 in Los Angeles, which is 40% of the state's population, and which is where most people re-enter when they come back out of jail. They're going to come back down to Los Angeles. And um, it just really broke the system. There's so many broken homes, children that are without their parents, and this cycle of violence and abuse, the DCFS, all of that has to do with this whole prison system and this over-incarceration and where they forgot about the word rehabilitation and they started not wanting to do that. And every day when I'm in court, I have to fight. Some DAs are fine, but a lot of them still have this very hard line idea that, that, you know, they're just not, there's no compassion in the way that they do what they do. And they're the gatekeepers because literally they're the ones that make the charges. They're the ones that decide whether to go forward with the case or not. And many times, because they have that bully pulpit, they decide Mm -hmm. to go forward even when they don't have enough evidence, as in my case. The the judge admonished them in the end and said, you had a weak case, you know? So 
it doesn't surprise me that this is the result. And that's what he told them. You had a weak case. You shouldn't have brought it. You wasted taxpayers' money because I'm sure they spent over a million dollars prosecuting it. And it was ridiculous, you know, but the weight of the state is very uh, heavy, very heavy. Okay. And um, the average person can't deal with it. And even in my case, knowing what I know and being experienced and knowing that I wasn't guilty, so I'm not going to plead. Um, they kept on coming up with some really funny things. Like I wrote a book about it, actually. So cool. tell us what the book is. 13th juror. Okay. Um, and the judge was very, I, I really didn't realize that he was paying attention so much. But the judge in my case was actually one, he was the DA that represented um, the people against uh, Rodney King's um, attackers. Wow. And, and after he lost that case, famously lost that case, right? He became a, uh, a judge. And, uh, you know a very good one in my opinion, because obviously he made the right decision in my case. Um, but a lot of judges, um, they just seem really hard line and they, they, and maybe they get too jaded and many of the DAs, maybe they're just too jaded. Um, but they, they see it as a lose if they get any ground, you know, even though, okay, so the person's going to jail for 10 years, you know, if we get them in there for five years or we put them in diversion when you clearly see that a person has mental health issues, which many people that are incarcerated do, they have mental health and or substance abuse issues. Mm -hmm. and, and it plays a role in most of those cases. Like right now, what I'm seeing is a lot of domestic violence because of COVID. I'm seeing a lot of domestic violence cases and they're up-leveling those to felonies. If they come out, they, this is not how they used to do it because they used to just leave you sitting there and never come. But if they do come, somebody's going to jail. That's how they, you know? And many times they'll up-level it to a felony when it could have been a misdemeanor. Um, so there's a lot of felony domestic violence where they're saying any, anything you use to hit somebody with, even your hands can be considered a deadly weapon. So they're up-leveling to assault with a deadly weapon. And then if they have ADW, then they say, Oh, um, we've got GBI, which is great bodily injury. And then um, the next one they'll say is, is attempted murder. Because we had great bodily injury and we had assault with a deadly weapon. And we probably also had attempted murder. Looking at nine years or more just with those three charges over a domestic dispute. So it's, um, it's very serious. There's a lot of people that are shocked to be looking at so much time. Um, and thinking, and, and so many of my clients, there's also a lot of sex offenders that are getting picked up. Mm -hmm. um, they're hanging out on the internet, they're bored, and uh, the police put sting operations together. So, and, and you'd be surprised at things that are illegal to do that people think are okay. Um, sexting is against the law. And then people will do things where they try to shame their made and send, um, you know, text messages with nude pictures or compromising pictures to other people or put them on the internet. And that's a crime, you know, and they, they seem to not think it is, but it's felony. So, you know, it, it's interesting. And, and when I get my clients, they come in sometimes and 
They want to tell me what they did or didn't do. Or And sometimes you have to understand, you have to be honest with your lawyer. I'm not the judge. I need to know what I'm looking at. You know, I can't make an assessment if I don't know really what really happened. I mean, if you really did it, tell me you really did it. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you might still not still get off or actually because there may be some loopholes in the way they collected the evidence. So we might have we might be able to do a motion to suppress or there may be some loopholes in the way they wrote up the information or the police report or when they go to the preliminary hearing, there may be some anomalies or loopholes in what we, what gets on the record. And so we can do a motion to strike the information, a motion to suppress the evidence. There's lots of things that can be done, but then when people aren't honest and then some new witness comes up and you're like, Surprise, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> I might have been able to suppress that evidence, but now that it's in, it's not going to be good for you. <laughs> you know? So it's like a game of chess, you know. It's um, it's not what you know, it's what you can prove and what evidence actually literally becomes available because obviously you can take somebody's pawn, you can take somebody's queen in a game of chess and then it makes it more difficult to win. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. The prosecutors, on the other hand, they just, they're, some of them are scorched earth. They change the rules so that they fit them. Like, for instance, at a preliminary hearing, a police officer can read into the record his police report, which is all hearsay. Every, every bit of it's hearsay. He's not a precipient witness. He's talking about things that people told him happened. So that's the definition of hearsay. But they can use that to hold you, bind you over for trial. So many times the conventional wisdom is not to really present your defenses, but that doesn't work if it's a um, domestic violence case. You know, I've been, yeah, go on. I've covered a lot of uh, trials over the years as a court, as a court reporter mm-hmm. and people, when police officers get on that stand, and I don't know what it's like now. I haven't covered, you know, in, in a in a while. But back when I was doing it, back in the back in the um, early two thousands, when a police officer got on that stand, people listened. They do. Let me tell you something. When I was in law school, I worked in the appellate division of the district attorney's office in LA County. I watched the DAs making their closing arguments, and there was one he said works every single time and it's this one so you're cross-examining the police officer no you're in your closing argument i'm sorry you're in your closing argument and it comes down to the word of the police officer against the word of the defendant Mm -hmm. all he does every single time on his closing argument is he points to the police officer and says he is sworn to protect and serve you why would he lie if you believe the defendant, you're calling him a liar. Why would he lie? Mm-hmm. And so it also makes them feel like if I call the police, they're not going to help me. Um, you know, literally people, you know, you say innocent until proven guilty. The average person that sits on a jury is somebody that the average person, not everybody, they couldn't get out of it. They couldn't figure out a way to get out of it. Or they have nothing better to do. They watch soap operas or they, hey, this is like a soap opera. I watch court TV. I'm going to go in here and I'm going to be in a jury. Mm-hmm. These are not people that are going to use a lot of critical thinking. And many of them 
do believe at the very beginning, if you were to poll them, they believe the defendant is guilty. Why? Because he's sitting on the defense side of the table. I've always told people the worst place to be is sitting in that defendant's box. On that side of the table, the only worst thing for you is to be a black man sitting on that side of the table. <laughs> That's why when they were talking about, I watched every minute of the OJ trial. I mean, every minute. Mm -hmm. And people don't realize that um, three of the people in that courtroom worked for Johnny Cochran. The judge, Ito, was under him. Marcia and Christopher Darden were under him. They actually worked under him. And what happened, and in one point, he got so mad. Judge Ito says, I don't work for you anymore. You can't boss me. <laughs> it was so funny to watch the dynamics in the courtroom and, and, and to realize, and I also read Johnny Cochran's autobiography where he talks about really what was going on in his mind the whole time. And he said he had no problem. He really knew he was going to win when he thought, he said Bill Hockman was the senior attorney on the case. And he actually literally had a heart attack the night before the opening statements were supposed to be read. So he was out. He said he knew then he had nothing to worry about because he knew Marsha Clark and Christopher Garden, and he knew that they were always trying to get publicity. They were always coming in his office begging him to be on high profile cases. And frankly, he didn't think they worked hard enough to, to get that. But uh, they were both put on that case, but under Bill Hockman as a senior attorney. And once he had a heart attack, Marsha became the senior attorney and didn't handle the case properly because it's really easy to get a black man guilty. Watching a lot of trials, watching the trials I have, it's funny because people don't realize that attorneys, that like you say, attorneys know each other. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, and a lot of times they know the judges. So, I mean, it, it, it's the whole thing is it, it, it's, it's like a big, like you say, a game of chess, a play to see well, who 90, what, what a lot of people don't realize is 97% of sitting judges are, are ex prosecutors, mm -hmm. either city attorneys or um, VAs. That's A number one. B number two, a lot of them are Republican. So the Republicans double down on appointments. The Democrats don't seem to have that strategy, unfortunately. Um, so even though there may be less Republicans, technically in this country, they never have been a majority. They will gerrymander and play all kinds of games to be a majority, but they're not. The one thing they do is they double down on those judges. And that has been an excellent strategy for them. They literally, the Supreme Court selected the president twice, mm -hmm. okay, because it was stacked. The Supreme Court has very rarely been liberal. Very rarely. We had, um, I think, two courts back in the 70s. That's when we got all the rights that we have now. Roe versus Wade, Miranda, all those famous decisions. Most of them were made in the 70s. And after that court, we haven't had anybody liberal yet. And it's been stacked. And they've made horrible decisions. Like um, when we're looking at the George Floyd situation, there, most people don't know this because they're not lawyers, but during the time that the riots were going on actively regarding George Floyd, there were seven cases regarding um, qualified immunity, which were rejected for cert 
by the Supreme Court of the United States. And that was a time when we needed to resolve that issue of qualified immunity, because that's what they hide behind. That's what they hide behind. Now, Dr. Shirley Weber, she was a legislator out of San Diego. She put forth a bill that got passed that said they had to have just, they meaning the police, have to have just cause in order to kill somebody. I don't know that it's been tested yet, but now they can't, there is repercussions for them doing that because because there weren't any, what do you do when there's like no checks and balances? Mm -hmm. What do you do when you're the big dog on the block and who's going to stop you? I mean, literally, this is what's been happening is they've been, they've been rogue. I mean, look at what happened with the sheriffs in Compton, mm -hmm. LAPD. Remember, they had a rogue group too. But this happens all the time because literally they know they can hide behind the police union. So what? I mean, so does that make them think twice? No, it doesn't. They have no reason to think twice before shooting before shooting somebody. As a matter of fact, if they're sadistic, they're thinking, let me look for the next person who I can shoot and probably not get in trouble. <laughs> you know, wasn't why they make the wrong call on that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that, you know, ra ra racial profiling, because I know, I mean, even I'm, I'm half Mexican. I have friends that are Mexican. I mean, even the Mexican people that I know are afraid to get pulled over by the cops at this point, the police at this point. You know, yeah. I mean, how bad is racial profiling? I mean, are, are they more apt to pull over someone with dark skin than they are to pull over someone with white skin who's, who's committing the same, say, traffic violation or whatever? Definitely. Uh, there was a recent case a few months ago, maybe a couple months ago, when I was in Sacramento, um, I had two cases up north, and there was a case of a police officer who profiled a black man, and she knew, now when she stopped him for the traffic stop, she knew she didn't have reasonable cause, or, um, you know, she didn't, have, she didn't have probable cause or a reasonable suspicion that this man had committed a crime, other than the fact that he was black, so she said, let me just stop him, run his tags and see that. She stops him, finds out, she searches his vehicle on a stop that wasn't, I mean, there wasn't even a reason to stop him for a traffic stop, but she searches his vehicle and finds the gun. Now she's trying to back into it, which is what they do a lot. So she calls her boyfriend, who's also a police officer, and she forgets that the, I love that body cam, I love it. She forgets it's rolling the whole time. His is rolling, hers is rolling, his partner's is rolling. So she got dismissed from her job and mm -hmm. prosecuted for perjury for falsification of police records because she did submit a false police report. They're very interesting. Mm -hmm. Excuse me for one second. My other guest is having trouble getting on, so I'm kind of helping. Um, because it's just the whole thing fast. I mean, it's just, it's not right. You know, what they're doing isn't right. Mm -hmm. You know, and like I said, a lot of my friends that, that are Mexican do have that fear that, you know, that, that they're going to get pulled over all the time. And, and, and it's not, it's not old cops, not old cops are bad, but there is, you know, there's, there's a handful that, that are, are bad. And then the bad ones make it, make it look bad for everybody else. And it's sad. Yes. Because what would be good is if other cops were held accountable for their bad ones. Okay. Mm -hmm. If they police themselves. You know, we're supposed to do that as lawyers. They should be doing that as police um, because then they become complicit. And if they get the same penalty 
Because if I'm your partner and you're going around shooting people, I know you're shooting people. And I know you're, I already know, I get the attitude in the car and you're already telling me what you're going to do when you get out and what you're going to do to this one and that one. And you're already calling them derogatory racial slurs. And I know how you feel about people, right? I may not feel that way. And I might try to tell you not to do it. But, I, you know, actually, I usually I'm not going to tell you not to do it. I'm not going to participate, but I'm not going to stop you. And I'm not going to tell on you. Now, there was a famous case where somebody did. Jeffrey Dorn. Um, yeah, I think his name was. Um, I forget what his first name was. Ms. Dorner was his last name. And he was a Navy SEAL that became a police officer. He told on his um, one of his commanding officers that was abusing a woman in the back seat who was mentally ill, but was beating the person up. And he asked her to stop. She didn't. So he told her superior. Instead of it going one way, it went the other way. They literally railroaded him out, but it wasn't enough that they um, fired him from LAPD. When he tried to go back to Navy SEALs, they then bad-mouthed him and gave him, you know, they were just really vengeful and vindictive and nasty about it. So when he realized he couldn't do what he had wanted to do all of his life and what he trained to do all of his life, he went postal on him. And that's the one where the guy went out and hunted down some of the people that were, you know, you, you heard about that one. And yeah. he, they, they killed him. Um, they literally killed him. They cornered him in a house up in um, like Lake Arrowhead and they burned the house down with him in it. But they had the SWAT team, the helicopters, everybody there um, because they didn't really want him to come out on the other side. He had done this, he had written a manifesto that he uploaded to Facebook before he went on his rant. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want him to go more into that, the fact that how he was treated unfairly and that's why he did that. I'm not justifying what he did, but he just lost it, just like they do all the time, <laughs> you know? And many times they don't get caught. And I have people calling me like, sometimes it's so sad. I have mothers calling me saying they're, their sons are in jail for a long time and they don't know what to do and they don't understand it because they don't think they should be in jail for 25 years. When you go to jail, you're going to find that 80% of people in the maximum security prisons are between the ages of 18 to 22 and they're probably black, African-American. There's going to be some other people in there too, but why is there such a concentration? I mean, that doesn't make sense that they don't represent that much of the population and, and a lot of crimes are just up-leveled way too much, you know, and I, I hate it, but a lot of times when I get clients, they'll think that they could just explain themselves, and it's all a big mistake, and, um, you know, that it should just go away, and uh, I even had one client who was from Iran. Um, he had, <laughs> so he had been sexting back and forth on um you know, text messaging, and uh, he was on uh, Match.com. He met some woman on Mm Match.com and didn't realize that they were going to call him a sex offender. So the woman came over to his house in the morning, and, you know, they had been talking sexy back and forth. So when they get there, she claims that he said, when are we going to get naked? And she said, not right now. Now, not right now is not no. Mm-hmm. Somehow or other, she claims she left, but she had a hickey on her neck, a couple hickeys on her breast, 
and he prematurely ejaculated on her stomach. So, she, so now <laughs> LAPD gets a hold of it and they decide that after months of just messing with him, he finally calls me. They decide that this is an attempted rape. This is, um, you know, yeah, an attempted rape, basically, yeah. And um, they don't, they ignore the fact that she said, not right now. And apparently she must have taken her clothes off at some point because how did he have access to put hickeys on her breast and ejaculate on her stomach if she was fully clothed? Mm -hmm. So she forgot a little part of the story, right? The real issue was that she came in and she, she was a really pretty woman, but she was big, right? So when she came to the door, he said, she goes, she goes, oh, you probably don't want to see me anymore now that you see how I really look. And he said, he was trying to tell her, oh, don't have such low self-esteem. You know, you, you're, you're fine. Because basically, actually, he liked big girl, apparently. <laughs> he got so excited. So anyway, that wasn't actually a problem for him. Um, but, she, but he said he didn't want to see her again. So two days later, she reports that he raped her and she gets a rape kit. And I'm thinking, didn't you take a shower? Didn't you change your clothes? I mean, and then a rape kit. So when I talked to the LAPD officer, I said, I'm going to need enough semen that I can um, test it, make sure that it's his. I'm trying to figure out where, how did you find a big enough sample of semen that you could actually do something with it? Mm -hmm. You know? So anyway, it was interesting, but the client got pissed off because they exhorted me because in his country, they can, you know, apparently he had money and they could just explain their way out of it. Not how it works. So I talked more because of his exhortations. I talked more than I should have even at the arraignment. And the judge, it was so funny because I said, you know, we've been, I don't know why you're even keeping him in bail because we, he willingly came and I was there, you know, I talked to you guys and told you, you know, he's not a flight risk. He's, um, this has been going on since September and now it's like January. He's not a flight risk. And um, the DA, they have a lot of younger DAs. A lot of them are retiring. The older, more experienced ones are retiring. After COVID, they're like, they've gotten spoiled. As a matter of fact, they come to court in tennis shoes and jeans now. And the other day the judge said, oh, I guess you guys are gonna have to be more formal. And the DA said, nope, there's a lot of pushback, a lot of pushback on that. So I still see the other day I was in criminal courts building and the guy was wearing tennis shoes and jeans. Wow. The VA was. So I was dressed up more than he was. But um, anyway, if they can dress like that, then why shouldn't I be able to? Right. Of course, that's not going to work. But anyway, um, that's what they've been doing. And um, but but in this case, the, the, for some reason, this, the DA that was on in charge she had just passed the bar and she was so adamant that she wanted him to stay in jail, that he was a sex offender. And I'm like, I don't want to. So she made it like I was making light of it, you know, that this woman had been bullied and all this stuff. I said, yeah, I don't see it that way. You know, I'd be the first one, actually, because I really don't like domestic violence and people bullying people. That's one main reason why I became a lawyer. So I'd be the first one to be telling my client, you know, we're going to have to look at this a different way and we're going to have to maybe set a deal or something because you did this, this, and this, and we can't really get around that. And if they prove that, there's going to be a lot more consequences for you and possibly additional charges added on. So 
So maybe at this stage before they know or figure out more or want to put in more charges or have more evidence to put in more charges, maybe we should look at trying to settle this. Um, but anyway, in this case, I really felt like it was just, she felt jilted. I mean, two days later, she goes in because he tells her he doesn't want to see her anymore, you know? And I want to grab her text messages and see what she said. But the funny thing is, <clears throat> he told me, I got rid of the computer. I got rid of the phone. There's no evidence. <laughs> I said, bad news. You said you're a PhD candidate, right? Don't you know that the cloud never goes away? Everything's in the cloud. You know, they record our verbal phone calls without a warrant. They can use a warrant. They can give it to you 30 days after they've already taken the information from the cloud. <coughs> because they don't want to alert you at the time. <laughs> They'll do surveillance on you. And the rules are they don't have to tell you. They don't have to tell you they're surveilling you. Because we're always actually being surveilled. <laughs> they don't have to tell you. If they want to use it, they can send you a warrant, and then the warrant will be 30 days old. It'll say, 30 days ago, we started surveilling you, or, you know, we ended, we finished 30 days ago, <laughs> you know, but um, <clears throat> this is just to notify you that you've been under surveillance, you know, and that's crazy. Uh, mm -hmm. So we have no right to privacy. <laughs> Well, you, you, know, you made the change from being a criminal lawyer. You made the change to being a, a defense lawyer for these people. Was that because of what you saw that was going on? Well, when I was in the DA's office, <clears throat> I was in the appellate division. And I made up my mind right then that I wasn't going to do criminal law. Mm -hmm. It was only after they started to prosecute me and come after me that I decided that, you know, somebody needs to help these people because this is ridiculous. The reason I didn't want to do it then was because I saw people being railroaded and I didn't want to be part of that process. <laughs> In order to get a promotion as a prosecutor, you've got to rack up um, cases and, 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 and it, <clears throat> whether you do it by trial or by plea bargaining, doesn't matter. It's still a win in your column. And you want to try to get the most penalties so that you can get the most death penalty cases, the most, you know, the highest amount of penalties. And that's considered, um, that's how you get promoted in the DA's mm -hmm. office. So it's um, kind of counterintuitive. Instead of them actually looking at the facts and saying, did this person commit this? And what actually are we looking at here that they did? Or we see that there's some mental illness here. We see that there's substance abuse involved. Why don't we just do mental health diversion and try to rehabilitate this person? Why don't we try to help this person? Those tools are there, but as a defense counsel, I have to fight to make them do that. Even in clear-cut cases where people have mental illness, a lot of people in jail have mental illness or were under the influence of substance abuse when they committed the crime. Um, and there's what they call co-occurring disorders. Many people are self-medicating. They actually may be undiagnosed. Mm -hmm. I went to a doctor he said he's pretty sure that 30% of the people that are walking around on the streets are undiagnosed with DSM-5 diagnoses that some of them are quite serious. And we're right next to them. We don't even know. Very interesting. Let's see if we can get Henry in here and to talk about a little bit what he does. Hey, Henry, are you there? He's yeah. muted. He's hiding. Well, his, his microphone is muted. Yeah, I can see his muted. Yeah, 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 yeah. Give yeah, he's me here. Let me, let me, let me stop oh, okay. right here. Okay. okay. 
Berlin. Okay. Cool. All right. Cool. There he is. There's Henry. Right. Oh, <laughs> trying to work this little camera. Sorry. <laughs> Let me see. Is that right? Okay. Here we go. There yeah. We the go. reason why Sorry. I brought Henry on is because um, after reading your profile, uh, Rhonda, Henry does community work here in Sacramento, mm -hmm. and he works with 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 incarcerated inmates. And um, he's helped a lot of people here locally. Doing similar stuff to you, he's he's worked at, he's worked with the legislature, trying to get new laws passed, you know, to to help protect people when they're arrested and stuff like that. So I mm -hmm. thought he might be a good add on to the show. Okay. Hi, Henry. Um, hey, how you doing, Rhonda? How's everybody? I just, I'm listening into to uh, uh, the the court systems as we know them, right? I've heard thousands of stories of. Uh, hundreds of illegal convictions, according to how the law was written. Right, one of the guys that that that, uh, that uh, taught me about law, that taught me about how to fight, and once he taught me, I I just started fighting these fools on every level, write ups, uh, you name it. I, you know, you 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 should be innocent until proven guilty, but it, it's the other way uh, around with with people of color is you're guilty until you can prove me that you're innocent. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you don't have legal knowledge, when you don't have effective legal counsel, and you're dealing with public defense that are having coffee with the opposing parties and, and, and all the cards are stacked against you. And, you know what I'm saying? It's like, how can a person like that uh, defend you when they have high amounts of caseload and it, everything's just about numbers, everything's about just deals and, 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 and stack everybody out of there and people are, are forced but to take deals otherwise get hung by the system and, and, and put in the, in the concrete box for the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with Susan Burton? Yes, yes, with all of yeah. us or none. I think she, yeah, yeah, she, 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 she's been around a minute. Uh, she's well-respected. Yeah. Um, I, I, I hear her uh, mentioned a lot. Uh, uh, yeah, I know who she is. Well, she talks about the fact that if you, if everybody refused to plea bargain, that would really just jam the system. The only way they can warehouse so many people at once is because of the plea bargaining system and the fear that is struck in their hearts. But our, our host mentioned something important too, though. That fear is is legitimate because the jurors tend to side with the defendant. And, and, and I've seen them say in cases, they just feel like if all this fuss is made and somebody's sitting on the defense side of the table, somebody must be guilty. And they they have to believe that because they, they can't really understand that the system is broken. And they really don't want to believe that the system is broken. So they believe that it works, even though they see it not working, they ignore the evidence that the people have been railroaded, that the officers, what I'm finding more and more, every single arrest that I look at, every case that I have, I look at the arrest to see how they arrested the person. And I'm making section 1983 claims against them if they violated their civil rights, which they do a lot. And it's, it's a wonder that more people don't get killed because the police tactics that they use are very dangerous and very likely to kill someone. Yeah. Even in Northern California and Southern California, I've seen them, um, usually they put them down and they tell them they want them to lay down on the ground, face down, in the dirt, on the asphalt, doesn't matter. They want them to lay down, face down, they handcuff them, they jump on them, they get on their back and put their knees in their back with their entire weight. And then they put their hands on their head and they're literally pushing their face into the ground, into the dirt. They're suffocating from the behind. It's, it may not be a chokehold, but they're suffocating. 
And there was a guy in Oakland maybe a couple of months ago that died that way. I believe he was a Hispanic man that died that way. But I saw them do it to a young 18-year-old boy that was in Fairfield. I've seen them do it to other people. And they don't like it when you call them to account. But every time that happens, anytime you get arrested, whether you're right or wrong, if they beat you up, twist your arm, choke you, you should make a complaint. Because that way, the next time they do it, there'll be a pitches motion and, then, and you can pull the personnel file and see if they have a history of violence. It doesn't help you to not tell on them. It, it, it really, because you hope that other people do as well, because if we can show that history of violence, then they become, it's a, you know, now the best defense is a good, you know, the best um, defense is a good offense. And now they have to be on the defense because now they have to defend their officer against the claim that they did something they weren't supposed to do. And, and you know what? A lot of times I find, you know, because they, they, they document the paperwork. They're the ones that are kidnapping you, right? It's a whole part of a big old structural system that's been made to to to, to brand us with these numbers, uh, to be disenfranchised, to be uh, held in captive, slave labor, kidnapped from our communities, uh, oppressed, uh, you know, have to pay 55% restitution, and just like, like smashed to like the court, coming out on parole, probation, and like, you know, I, just literally nitpicking or violating you for things that are not even illegal for you know but because you're on probation they have the right to run all over you so you know as we know as we're seeing as the research is revealing you know uh a lot of these lot of these campaigns these stuff on crimes war on drugs uh we're, we're all just you know the, the, the these these manipulative strategies to get people like let's just incarcerate the problem away let's just take some of these most oppressed broken uh disenfranchised people whose land we took or whose ancestors we kidnapped to build you know uh you know the, the, these 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 uh communities that we live in while we oppress their communities and not invest in them and then send uh the, the you know the sharks to go and kidnap them from their community and stuff so you know uh the 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 thing is you know pushing these laws and also doing research in the court system and, and and holding the the judges accountable, holding the DAs accountable, uh, because a lot of a lot of the way they operate is just to 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 bury you, to oppress you, to incarcerate you, and, and create more further harm for you, your family, and and also the the victims. Like no healing, no 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 support, no no resolution. No, how do we have a, a restorative discussion where we can resolve a lot more? A lot more issues can be resolved by community outside of these freaking oppressive court systems that just create more harm for both parties. You know what I'm saying? A lot, our own community can hold each other accountable. When somebody creates harm, we can all come together. We could put, you know, uh, uh, some pressure and discussions to to get these people to hold themselves accountable, and, and and also uplifting the needs and the values of of, of whoever's been harmed, and also going through the layers of the discussion. But there's times, special courts sometimes that do that, but they don't promote them as much. Like we had the Halo Court for homeless people, and then we had another court, the Drug Courts. They literally defunded Prop 36 right after it came in. One of the main reasons I set up the substance abuse clinic in the first place on 48th and Crenshaw was because of Prop 36, because of um, Robert Downey Jr. You know, I actually, as an entertainment lawyer, I had met him before and I could see his struggles. But I said, you know, I know that this is an endemic problem in our community. It has to do with all these other collateral things that are happening. But one of the main things you see is many of the crimes are tied into drugs. Why? Because they brought them into our community and have held, and been holding us hostage and enslaved to the drugs. So 
literally people don't realize this, but drug Medi-Cal is a reparation. It's a war reparation. It was started in the 1970s by Ronald Reagan. And the reason why was because a lot of white people descended upon Washington saying, you, I, I've spent a lot of money on this problem. I don't know what it is, but my son has come back broken. I sent him to serve your country and he's come back broken. Now they didn't listen to the black and brown, but they did listen to the white people. When they came in and said, hey, my son is broken. They created a carve out called drug Medi-Cal that can only be used. This type of Medi-Cal can only be used for drug treatment, nothing else. And at the same time, like if you needed drug treatment, you can be qualified for Medi-Cal for that purpose, even if you're not qualified for Medi-Cal otherwise. Mm. So that's a, that's a war reparation. And it was because of that that they set it up. Now they don't realize, I mean, they're not even thinking about it. the opiate problem was a problem in the black and brown community way before it was a problem in the white community. But when white kids started being overdosed on heroin and, and, and taking opiates and fentanyl, now it's a problem. It was a problem before because of the health disparities. Many people were given um, addiction by prescription. They were prescribed hydroconon, Vicodin, um, Valium, which is a benzodiazepine, Xanax. These were prescription drugs that were being abused regularly, but by prescription. People were getting addicted by their doctors. And after a while, they started making it a penalty, but the penalties are only usually uh, against doctors in the black and brown community, and those doctors are getting um, taken out. And the problem is that their people do have chronic pain, you know, and to cold turkey them off of the um, drugs. That's not even when I was doing the drug treatment, harm reduction was the way you go. You take them down little by little. You don't cold turkey them off of heroin, uh, alcohol, um, and, you know, meth. You don't you can't do it. It's just you can't willpower your way out of it. There's, do, you know, there's so many reports now. And uh, I got chronic pain. So I, I understand, you know, what's going on because I, I, I have a pain specialist that drives me insane. And on the on a lot of the Facebook pages that I follow, there's so many people that are going for their regular appointment and there's a note on the door. Oh, I've yeah, had to shut the clinic down. Yeah. 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 Good luck. Thank you and good luck. Yeah. Well, there, I know a doctor on Crenshaw, he had some, the, the people threw a chair through his front window because he had to stop giving them the pain meds, cold turkey or face being, um, you know, losing his medical license. Yeah. And, and and he felt that it was not compassionate. He came to me saying, how can I set up a clinic? Because it just hurts me to stop their medication like this when I know they're in pain. Mm -hmm. um, and there has to be a way to get them off their addicted. So they're going to go a different way. They're going to find a way to self-medicate. And, and, mm -hmm. and you know what? I also find that a lot of these medications are finding themselves into the youth. And uh, there's a lot of a lot of youth that were dying out, out there out here in Sacramento. Uh, on top of the violence, the high amounts of violence that was also induced by those types of medications and the different uh, addictions that kids are consuming, mostly pills, though, it seems like uh, that what I've observed from the uh, young people we're working with. And uh, it, it's 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 a very it's a it's a it's a it's a it's an epidemic that's 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 affecting a lot of people. And I'm also watching a lot of people with chronic pain, like going through a lot of aches and pains because their their medications, like you said, they're just taking them cold turkey. And uh, uh, like only only the doctors of color are being held accountable to those standards. 
why everybody else, the upper class that are connected with the FDA and all, all these other different clinics, there's a business, it's a money making business. It, it doesn't change, man. Uh, you know, I mean, it's gangsterism to, to its fullest, you know, from the top. You know what I'm saying? They, they, they want to criminalize the shit out of people of color yeah. making, you know, nickel and dime hustles out, out here in the streets. But, you know, they, they, they're the biggest multi million dollar, you know, uh, you know, man, I don't even want to get on that, on that one, but you already know. You know what I'm saying? The drug industry is the, the legalized drug industry is the biggest drug industry of all. And they know better, you know, than to um, give us those drugs, but they do. But, and people that are educated, you know, you, you think that the doctors are doing the right thing for you. I mean, one time I had a migraine, I get migraines sometimes and I had a really bad migraine, but I know the dangers of addiction. So by the time, if I call my doctor and say I need something, it's unbearable. So she gave me 100, 100 Vicodin mixed with, um, I'm, I'm sorry, it was Tylenol with codeine with Fioracet. Now, Fioranol is also, so both of those are considered addictive. Um, 100, she gave me 100. I only took three, enough to take the edge off. Somebody stole the other ones. And that's how a lot of these get in circulation. People come to people's house. You have to lock up your medications, but never take anything for more than 72 hours. I don't care if you've had major surgery, don't take it. Doctors know you're going to be addicted if they prescribe it for more than 72 hours. If you take the average prescription for two weeks of Tylenol Codeine 3, you're done. You're going to be an addict. And that's following the doctor's orders. And you know, it, it, it's, it's sad that we have a lot of ancient native uh, traditional uh, uh, healing remedies to a lot of the different uh, things we, we face. And a lot of times it's like, look, your biggest enemy is your food. The, the, these, these, two, these hamburgers two, two for, for $3, you know, and, and a family that has five, you know, uh, on welfare, the husband's probably locked up, you got five kids. They're gonna go with the, with the cheapest food. The cheapest food is the more harmful food. Uh, meats that are banned in other countries that we're feeding our people out here in these communities. These liquor stores, all the, you know. Every time I go to a liquor store now, I'm like, damn, it's either diabetes or heart disease or or liver. You know what I'm saying? Like alcohol, chips, or or sweets. Like like we need to be more conscious of what we're eating because a, a lot of things are killing us. The, the, the toxins in the air. You know what I'm saying? The communities, like, they're just polluting the hell out of our areas. They don't regulate our air. We want to regulate the nice communities. But what about the, you know, uh, the people with all the chronic health issues and stuff? And, and you know, you got the medications creating also behavioral uh, health problems and mental health problems, you know, uh, bipolarness, anxiety disorders. And, like, you know, if, if people would go and trip out and maybe smoke a good little weed, you know, you'd, be, you'd be amazed all the different remedies and, and, and healing that, that this does, whether it's through oils, whether it's through lotion, whether it's through, you know, smoking. You know what I'm saying? Like I, like everybody I've known who's, who, 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 who basically smokes weed now that it's been legalized is, is like has a more chill demeanor. The, their minds have been able to expand as long as you do it reasonably, right? Uh, and, and using like different types of oils and stuff that, 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 that come from our ancient uh, native ancestors. That, that have been lost in, in, in time or have been created into substances and powders that are now branded through the FDA to make money and, and really just never uh, heal the problem, just create treatments to create the long-term dollar coming in uh, through, through the medical systems, you know, through the taxpayers that basically is there to help people of color who become dependent on the systems their whole lives. And that, you, you know, know. 
a lot of it is mindset and it is what you're aware of because it's a lot of lifestyle things. I went to this one conference on black and brown boys and how the disparity between, you know, how their outcomes are. And it was at the California Endowment. And there was a, one of the guys in the, um, one of the presenters, he had a um, master's degree from Harvard in public health. And he said something really interesting. So he was talking about second generation immigrants when they come in, the first generation is one way, but by the second generation, which is when they've been enculturated with American culture, things change for them a lot. And I raised my hand and I said, well, what do you think that's attributable to? And I love what he said. He said, it would appear that the American way of life is bad for your health. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the food, it's everything. It's the culture, it's the TV. It's We don't exercise like we're supposed to. We're not in balance. We don't, uh, we don't meditate, we don't stretch, we don't do, you know, this just the, the way of life and the values that materialism and capitalism promote actually cause our demise. That's what's causing us to be sick. Most of our illnesses that have to do with greed has to do with eating too much mm-hmm. because we have so much available to us. Even recreational drugs, we have more free time because we have so much available to us. And so we have to have some sort of healthy self-discipline. Um, I myself am a Buddhist. And so that's what, you know, that, and I practice yoga. So that gets me my grounding and my discipline, but it has to be an internal thing. And we haven't mm-hmm. been taught that. I wasn't taught it as a child. I became that way over time as an adult, but we haven't been taught that way. If we regulate our diet properly, eat the proper supplements, we won't be sick. And we won't be committing crimes. Literally a lot of the psychoses that we have, even getting people off addiction. There's a book that I love that was written by somebody in, in Marin County at a clinic. At, they were the executive director of a substance abuse clinic and it's called The Mood Cure. There's two books that she wrote, The Mood Cure and The Diet Cure. Literally, if you take the right supplements and eat the right foods, you will not crave substances. You won't crave those things because alcohol is sugar-based. Everything that... The receptors that sugar goes to, every single drug, they go to that receptor, okay? So there's foods that we can have, they're called catecholicans. Those help you um, feel good, right? That's coffee and tea. Um, There's just a lot of natural things that a lot of people in Eastern cultures, and I find that people in indigenous cultures do, that relieve stress and don't cause, you know, so that's where we, we have all this franticness, but the materialism, and the unfairness of the economic system is what's driving a lot of the crime, mm-hmm. driving a lot of the domestic violence, all of that. It has to do with economics. I just had a client call me because he wanted an expungement. He's getting a divorce from his wife. He didn't get into domestic violence, but his wife is leaving him because he can't get a job because he has a felony on his record. So Run he down. wants to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Sorry, before I forget. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, I got you on the spot. I'm getting a lot of calls from my, my, my boys now that the governor might be up for to get bounced out. Um, pardons. Can you just uh, can you break down a little bit what a pardon actually does from a person? According from 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 what I researched, the commutation can redu- reduce the sentence uh, or, or, or can, you know, allow a person to get it, the rest of his sentence done. And, and if I'm not mistaken, the pardon 
will like literally wipe around, wipe seal your record, wipe around your whole record, including strikes. Uh, mm -hmm. Is that is that true? Yeah, yeah, but it's a process, you know. It's a process to get a pardon. It depends what type of pardon you want, a pardon from the state or a pardon from the federal, you know. Um, but it takes a while, you know. A pardon you to get all your get something called of rehabilitation. Um, some of my counselors, when I had my substance abuse clinic, I hired people from the community because I wanted to benefit the community and elevate people that had been, you know, in situations. Many of the, my, my counselors had past records. They had prior records and they had um, substance abuse, you know, but they had learned how to do it. And I felt like, OK, by getting them. Like one one of the most effective counselors I had had a certificate of rehabilitation and a pardon, and he was working with the youth. He couldn't work with the youth because of that, but he wanted to work with the youth because many times people got involved with gang activity and things like that and drugs when they were in their teens. He wanted, and he was really good working with them. I mean, he was really good. Um, I'm pretty sure we saved a lot of kids' lives by just having them there because between three and eight is the time that a lot of kids get shot and killed and mm -hmm. many of my kids. And when they shut my clinic down, at least two or three of my kids got shot that I had that would have been at my center at three o'clock in the afternoon when they got gunned down. That's where they would have been. No, I hear you. I mean, I, I, I got shot at many times as a youngster. I finally got hit when I was 16. You know what I'm saying? And uh, when they told me they were gonna cut my arm, I was really tripping, like man. But as soon as, as soon as I, I they said they didn't hit, there goes, there goes that, there goes that mindset. Like we gotta go, I gotta go find these dudes right now. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But uh, uh yeah, and there's there, there there needs to be more mediators. There's no mediators with these kids. We 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 just went. We've been pushing to stop the violence campaign because I'm, I'm, I'm uh, you know, little by little because I'm getting reports from Santa Barbara, Los Angeles, uh, uh, Riverside, uh, the Bay Area, uh, Stockton, Sacramento, Modesto. I'm seeing it here in South, all, all throughout SAC. There's a lot of youth violence now that COVID hit. A lot of these kids ain't in school as much. Uh, so they're posting and Instagram has just become like the new target of disrespect and dissing and 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 if you, and, and uh, creating that whole that whole dynamic and, and so there's not enough there's nobody stepping up. There's no I don't see adults effectively stepping up. There's a lot of great organizations doing what they can, but this is a big, big, big problem. Uh, you know, somebody was just telling me earlier today, it's easier for a young person to get more followers by far than an adult. Right, you know, we were talking about some of the young people. Yeah, this person had four thousand, and it went up to like in just weeks, you know, to this much. I said, "What the hell?" <laughs> you uh -huh. know, but but so so kids, they they feed off that gossip, they feed off that trauma, they feed off that ego, they they feed off that that poison, and and it's misdirected energy based on cultural and influence. This is what the U.S. feeds us, right? We, we it feeds us with 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 of course the freedom of expression, but sometimes some of the things that we're being uh, that we're observing as young people. Are things that are, are tainting our mindset and, and shaping our behavior patterns, and that eventually will create the, the the decisions that will create harms that will allow the system to 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 suck you up. You know, there was a bill that was uh, circulating uh, maybe more than twenty years ago, and it talked about self teaching kids those soft skills, those emotional intelligence skills in school. Of course, it was shot down, mm -hmm. and you know. The thing is, they were, you know, that's what needs to happen is those type of foundational skills. And then even when they have mock courts where they allow the kids to do their own um, courts, community courts. I've, I've tried to be an advocate when I had the um, 
substance abuse clinic. I was appointed alcohol and drug commissioner by Supervisor Mark Ridley Thomas for District 2. And, and I was trying really hard to push this, but even the supervisor didn't push it. These community courts. There was one called the Fathering Court, which was extremely successful. And I went and sat in on that court in D.C. And I didn't just make it up. It was done in some other areas, too. But what we need is to bring the fathers back and show them how to be fathers. So it started with, with training them on parenting from the fathering perspective, getting somebody out of uh, that had recently been incarcerated, giving them a reduction of 50% or more off of their child support, back child support payments, and having a team of people around them, including the judge, where they sit up here and they help them with a social worker to help them with their mental health problems, you know, to help them with the parenting, to um, help them get a job, you know, all these things. The recidivation rate after 80 people had gone through the program, only one had recidivated. And that wasn't even actually a recidivism in his case. Everybody three years out was still working, still involved with their children's lives. And it's just that scaffolding that's needed because they broke our system, they broke our communities, and we have to rebuild them. We don't even, it's like the hive. You know how the hive, dis, hive disintegrates with the bees? That's what happened to us. Taking, snatching parents out of the community and then, and then bringing them back and forth like that. Either it creates dysfunctional families or children that are broken because they don't have families. It just, it's a cycle that keeps going, you know, and we, need, we know how to break it. But when we, we like those, those community courts and bringing in, and bringing in help, for the parents, you know, the parents don't know. I took a parenting class when I had my son. I said, you know, everybody should probably take one, I think. I mean, no, you know what? That the way you were trained to be a parent was actually the best way, and there's maybe more different ways to do it. One of the things I used to find so heartbreaking um, in covering juvenile cases and covering the gang cases as well it was, were the mothers, because the fathers, uh, you know, apparently weren't in the kids' lives. They were probably in jail. But the mothers were just so heartbroken because their kids were in trouble. And I remember seeing them even coming into court and they were just in tears, you know, because they just, it, they, 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 they beside themselves with the problems. And, and I agree with you in that maybe, like you say, the fathers need to be, you know, they, they need to figure out how to get the fathers more involved with these kids. And I mean, to support the mother more. Yeah. To support the mother more. Because I had cases when it's, I had the sex abuse clinic where women had been taken, their children had been taken away from them. Usually substance abuse played a role. They had to, they were forced then to take anger management, parenting, and substance abuse classes. And I was helped, I helped a lot of families reintegrate, you know, but there were a couple of them that never did because they just, it just never worked out for them. And they needed, and the child needed to be in the foster care system. But most of the people that went through my program, they did reintegrate with their children. Um, but then they learned a lot of tools and learned a lot of how to do it the right way. People, sometimes they don't know. You know, when you know better, you can do better. But maybe they don't know better. Mm -hmm. No, you know what? Um, when I was working with the young people my first three years out. We're working nothing but uh, with populations uh, with, with high risk needs, you know what I'm saying? And uh, they were having a lot of violence at the schools with the brown kids, you know, the north and south issues that we're having there. And, uh, you know, over time, we were able to reduce the violence. Like the, the, the principal said, never in 20 years, they hadn't been that low amongst that population. But then we had the, the, the black kids and stuff. They had a lot of drama and there was a lot of mixture of kids out here. They're very diverse. 
And so the next challenge is like, now nah, well, hey, we don't want to just focus now on the brown kids. We want to focus on on all you know, the, the highest risk things. Let's, let's, let's push ourselves. Let's push our, our trainers, our facilitators. They're all impacted. They've all been vetted, you, you know, and and you know, fingerprinted, whatever, right? And so we brought them, trained them, and and and, and we took on that challenge. It, it was difficult at times, you know, because we had kids with uh, a lot of uh, mental health issues, kids that had ADHD, kids that, uh, and it was very challenging. I'm gonna tell you, uh, working with that population was challenging. But you know what? Uh, and working around seven, uh, close to about six or seven schools, different, uh, one high school, and, and like the rest were continuation schools, uh, teaching emotional intelligence skills, uh, building those soft skills was making an impact and uh, our graduation rates were, were uh, from like about, you know, between 78 to about 85% uh, after our, throughout our first, first second uh, year. And, you know, um, I mean, eventually I, I had to leave my nonprofit to, to do more of the systemic stuff. Cause like we, we could hear all day long on that level, but if the, the system's not on board, the teachers, my, my next mission was to train the principals and the teachers and then the parents, we all need to have the same emotional, social, uh, skills to be able to have healthy dialogues and mediate conflicts and, and and have everybody's needs heard and listen to the child instead of always telling them what the hell he needs to do you need to go listen to what's going on in his mind what happened who hurt him why is he so angry what is going on at mm -hmm. home and, and and sometimes the parents might know my parent my, my one parent might be abusing the other might not know or or they're all you know uh, dealing with an oppressive stressed out uh stressed out males abusive and and angry because he hasn't got his healing. So how do we get him healed so he can become healthy and develop healthy dialogues with his wife and his kids and, and, and reduce all this uh, nonsense uh, that, that, that cops get called to and, and then they take the man. Now that's the second time for a pattern that he has, a behavior pattern that's never been dealt with and hasn't been processed, hasn't been healed and hasn't, hasn't been able to find forgiveness to able to reshape that mindset to realize how they folks are creating harm to one another, and so that only comes with with having those those deep internal dialogues, those trainings, uh, those workshops, being able to laugh, being able to do role plays, and I've been able to heal. You know, a lot of the men that I worked in prison when I was teaching a lot of evidence based curriculums before I started eventually teaching my own curriculums and testing my own wits. I see other things that what do I got to read five different books to try to come to one conclusion? Why can't I just map out one curriculum that has all these different principles and universal knowledges of healing trauma, of healing anger, of dealing with emotions, of finding forgiveness, of bringing all the universal uh, spiritual concepts and, and, and teach it in a, in a comprehensible way, using visuals, developing our own models. Like, why are we the, always the guinea pig that gets researched on? Why can't we do our own research within our own people from our own experiences, from our own perspectives? And so that's what we've been pushing. And that's what I, I kind of I left a lot of the, like the nine, uh, nonprofit where my, my friend Daniel Silva, who was wrongfully convicted and, and did 39 years as a result uh, out there at, at West LA is the rampart. You know, he got set up back in the days and he finally got out the board, uh, staying by, 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 his, by his argument. And uh, uh, he runs the organization and they continue evolving and, and working with a lot of the uh, youth in, impacted by the juvenile hall system, probation, parole, uh, out throughout the Northern region. And so, um, so yeah, you know, um, there, there needs the to be name a of your organization? changes in policy. What's the name? I'm sorry to, uh, I, I was wanting to know what's the name of your organization? Well, with, with that project, uh, uh, it's called Self-Awareness and Recovery. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I did a lot of curriculum uh, there and, and wrote and they still teach it today. Now um, I've evolved and I, I'm coming out with a new curriculum that I've been teaching for the past uh, year and a half uh, since I left uh, uh, called Trauma Through a Traumatized Perspective. 
It's on uh, the different principles of healing trauma, going through a journey. Uh, it's a series of different workshops, but they're all rooted on, on one book that I'm, I'm, I'm right now uh, delaying on, on publishing because I've been just caught up, but uh, uh, I plan on publishing. It's just basically an emotional intelligence books uh, with testimonies, stories, uh, and, and uh, workshops. To like yeah. you could either read it to learn yourself, or you could run it and, and, and run it as a workshop based on all the different uh, work we've done in there. Whether it be dealing with uh, criminal addiction, uh, lifestyle addiction, uh, uh, dealing with uh, uh, victim offender dialogues, uh, mm -hmm. uh, dealing with uh, restorative justice, uh, and then emotional intelligence. So my, my whole mastery is more on emotional intelligence that are rooted in trauma. You know, when people learn to dialogue, to cry, to process, to be alright with being broken, to being hurt, to maybe having mental health issues. And learning that hey other people are, are with you in this fight and you just got to check in with each other and uplift each other and and process and relate so that you can make healthier decisions collectively in your own communities yeah that's what i liked about the substance abuse clinic i was i feel like i was able to do a lot and as a matter of fact i got commended by LAUSD because in the community day school the kids that my counselors were with graduated more frequently than anyone else and um they were even they wanted to expand and give me all the green dot schools 19 schools um because they loved what we were doing because i loved what i was doing i loved helping the kids and um you know and and and, and they just loved it but you know my clinic was stopped and that was the same kind of crap you know that these powers that be they break the system and like you i, I wanted to create so they have something called the nrap the national registry of evidence-based practices when you create a new curriculum, you have to go through some rigmarole with them to get it on the NREP because if you don't, they can disallow the monies that are paid to you if you're not using a pro, um, something that's on the NREP, that's evidence-based practice. Now, the thing is in the black and brown community, see, I grew up um, in Crenshaw area. That was my, I grew up there, went to school there, grew up. I understood the kids. I understood what was going on. I was one of the few people to get out and become an attorney, but I still understood the kids and understood what was going on. So that's why I was able from a compassionate and from a caring perspective, be able to help them because that's really what it is. They don't get attention. They're treated like trash. They're thrown to the side. Anybody or anything, any living being that you pay attention to, that you start to nurture, they start to respond to that and that's what they weren't getting people were afraid of them scared of them oh they're gangbangers or this and that and when i sit down and talk to them in my office they break down and cry a lot of times and they tell me miss Dixon, don't tell anybody you know these hardcore gangbangers from florencia 13 and crips and bloods and all this stuff and they're crying because their mom the reason why they we were acting out in the first place and that coming when they act out, I bring them in my office to find out what's behind it. It's usually they've hurt, you know, hurt people, hurt people. Mm -hmm. And what happened was on Sunday, they had a meeting with their mother and they were told that their mother would be able to re reintegrate if she would take these classes, parenting, anger management and um, substance abuse. And the mom said to him, well, you know, I can't do that. And of course, that meant to him, he was 14, 15 years old, that she didn't care enough about him to stop doing that so that she could be uh, reintegrated with her family. Mm -hmm. And that caused him to, you know, to be in pain. So he started wanting to fight the other boys and stuff like that. And I caught him in my office and realized that he, that's how boys, you know, deal with it because they don't want to cry in front of everybody else. Um, 
you know, so they, they're hurting. So they start wanting to hurt somebody else. That's their immature way of dealing with it and not really understanding. You know, I used to have a flip chart with emotions on it because many of the kids, they don't know how to identify their emotions. They don't know how to identify mm -hmm. what they're feeling. And, you know, if we can identify it, then we can get to the source of it. Maybe we can get to the cause of it and get to the, you know, get to a solution. And I love role playing. Role playing was one of the best things that we could do. I literally got a whole group of adults off of substance in, I would say, three months. But I gave it six months to make sure because they started testing clean after three months. So we did RAP. RAP it, um, it's, it's a recovery action plan, it's called. And I had read about this and I said, let's do this. Every month, everybody focuses on what the triggers are. So you use, okay, what was the trigger? And okay, so now if, if it's going to the liquor store or passing the liquor store where you get your drugs as the trigger, what are you gonna do next time? Somebody asks you to go in that direction. So we'd role play it out and then, and same thing happened with the kids. We'd role play it out and they'd figure out that there's different ways they could have reacted. There's different things they could have said and done. And, um, Eventually, they started testing cleaning. Mm -hmm. They started not doing drugs, and, and it was just it was just awesome. But I used to use a kind of Buddhistic approach too, because I'm a Buddhist. So I would use this mindfulness approach. We would do guided imagery, mindfulness, just to make them realize that you are empowered. The, the bad news is the reason you're here is because of some decisions you made in the past. But the good news is you can get out of it by making the right decisions starting now, right? Mm -hmm. So that was the empowering part of it. And, um, and a lot of people started to realize I can choose differently. They just really thought that this was the only choice they had, you know? It's interesting yeah, the streets, to hear this from- The streets with WDH. Yeah. Sorry. It's interesting it. to hear this from an attorney's perspective because that's something you don't hear all, all the time because people fear attorneys, e even defense attorneys, people don't trust. They just don't yeah. because of the system. Well, so, that's kind of a, a mistake on their part, though, because yeah. we're on their team. That's our job. You know, we're actually being paid to be the bully on their team. You know, that's what I always call myself. I'm the bully on your team. You know, I don't have trouble bullying the prosecutor, papering them, doing whatever I need to do, because that's what they don't expect to have to work. That's what I found out from working in the appellate division of the district attorney's office. We actually wrote the pretrial briefs. And remember, appeal is after, not before. Mm -hmm. But because the DAs didn't like writing motions or pretrial briefs, because we had to do research, because on the appellate level, the only thing you can appeal is you know how the judge says objection or overruled and sustained? The only thing you can appeal is the application of the law. You're appealing whether or not that judge made the right call from the bench when he said overruled or sustained, and whether they may, if they made the wrong call, if that error caused the um, caused harm to the defendant's case to the point where maybe that's the reason why they were convicted because they made the wrong evidentiary ruling. So that's all we're doing is looking at research and writing. We can't look at the facts on appeal. That's for the trier of fact. That's for the jury. The only thing we can look at is the law and whether the law was applied uh, correctly in that case or whether the judge stopped um, something or allowed something that wasn't right, that wasn't in, you know, evidentiary wasn't correctly based on the rules of evidence and that changed the outcome of the case. 
So they don't want to write. They don't want to research. So Mm -hmm. what I do the other day, now I made it a point every time to do a formal evidence uh, request because they're supposed to give you all the evidence, but a lot of times they hide the ball. So, and then if I find out from my client that there's something specific that is that we haven't seen and that he knows is available or that I see in the police report that they say they have surveillance cameras, that they came in and they got them, but they don't turn them over to me. That means that it's probably exculpatory. It probably doesn't have something that's gonna help the prosecution. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's actually, there's a case called Brady and Trombata, and they talk about those cases, and it's assumed that if they don't turn the evidence over, that it's probably exculpatory, and it's a grounds mm. for dismissal. I this wish there were stuff. more attorneys like you. <laughs> SSF. No, you know what, and now I'm finding, I've been organizing with more attorneys. I do believe in the power of attorneys. I keep quite a few, uh, and not just as personal friends, but it's also for business, because in this work, you get attacked from different angles, and you got to be ready, locked and loaded, you know? Back then, you were locked and loaded with, with, with arms in the streets and that struggle. Now, I lock, I locked and loaded with, with, with mindset, with, with the legal parameters, with creator, with community. And, and with integrity, you know, and because, you know, they, they, they'll come after folks and I see all day long. Today, I just got a call on another guy uh, facing deportation. And like, you know, uh, we've been we're doing work around that. We're pushing a bill called the Vision Act when people do time. Uh, uh, you know, they, they don't, they, they, what you're doing a state violation, you're doing state time, feds shouldn't come and now replenish you and retake your, all that's a whole different ball game. You catch that on a different note, you know, and they've been doing that for a long and we're pushing the bill, but then Rob Monta became uh, attorney general and, 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 and it, things got changed without Wendy Carrillo that picked it up. But right now the cards are stacked with governors having a lot of, a lot of, a lot of pushback with a lot of things. So he wants to lay low. And so it's on suspense. Yeah. And so, you know, and doing that, we're still organizing. We do participatory defense Tuesdays out here as we have a network all around, uh, you know, California and different partners that uh, practice the San, uh, uh, the San Jose model of debug uh, on participatory defense, which is a, a community family organizing model where the family comes together, we organize and we make sure we hold uh, the public defenders accountable, the, the judges and the DAs to make sure that the loved one gets justice and that they don't get swept sucked up by the system you know and they just blindfold basically you know run all railroad all over you you know what i'm saying because you don't know your rights you don't know about you know uh procedural violations that may occur or, or motions to file or not, and all the different legal uh jargon that sometimes our folks don't know or or rights that we don't know that can only come in collaboration with having the attorneys saying hey these these, these are the legal uh, parameters, and then the, the families and the community come, come in with the creative uh, narrative and, and defense because everything's about narrative. Who create, they, they're going to blow up pictures about you, make it look like this monster. And like you were mentioning on previous cases, there's all kinds of technicalities that wait a minute, you're saying it's all this stuff, but when you really break it down and you ask the right questions and you do the right research, there's a lot of holes in these cases, and, and, and there's a lot of people getting screwed over with a lot of freaking time. Uh, causing taxpayers all this funding and all these resources to make the oppressor just fatter on his pockets and he's getting paid, becoming the oppressor while everybody else is suffering, including the the, the, the survivors of, of these harms. 
you know. Mm -hmm. So, so, so yeah, it, it, it's it's ideal to 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 have co coalitions. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna be reaching out to you, Rhonda. Um, uh, now that we got like the bills, like the Racial Justice Act that we exercised recently at a preliminary hearing with uh, Minister King, who uh, they were trying to book him, uh, uh, give him up to seven years uh, for for being on parole and and as supposedly at, allegedly at CMF. When we look up the case from 1940s, there was only four published cases on that violation. These were people that actually went inside of the prison. And, and did those violations and they came out. This man never went outside. He, he was over there exercising his freedom of speech, uh, allegedly, right, uh, as they're saying, uh, uh, for a man that did 50, who's been incarcerated 58 freaking years. Angela Davis is uh, crime, who's still in there, uh, uh, who turned 82. And, wow, uh, and, but there's and, a new and on that same day, community Wait, members- you should be able to get out. Yeah, and they don't, they don't. They, they, they're they, saying they now that if a person is over, has been incarcerated more than 20 years and they're over a certain age, you can actually petition for them to get out. Can we get you can we get you on the call with the team, a coalition maybe, get a, get a, get a little hour from you and just get some thoughts and um, I mean, yeah, I'm gonna get out, I'm gonna put, I'm gonna work my juice card with, with Charlotte because in this movement, we need everybody, we need, we need attorneys, we need legislators, we need uh, family members, we need system impacted people, formerly incarcerated people, we need, we need people like, like, like uh, Charlotte to, to, to have these discussions and, and a wider audience and, and people really start thinking about what's going on in their communities and, and in the systems that, that, that govern them. Well, we need to make people aware, like when I was an entertainment lawyer, I was speaking to somebody about the three strikes law and I said, do you know, that you can be, you can, that if a person goes into a grocery store and steals a steak that's worth $5, that that's a, they will up level it to a commercial burglary in inhabited space and give that person a felony. And I had a recording artist, I was just, he was just on the verge of getting um, a deal and they second striked him on a commercial burglary for stealing a steak out of a grocery store because he was hungry. And I said, that's like a debtor's prison. I mean, a steak out of a grocery store? The man was hungry, man. I mean, this is ridiculous. This is not fair. This is not, he had to do four years in jail. And of course the songs and the music that he had was stale by that time. And his whole, I mean, he died not too long ago. He's only 40, wasn't that old. But his life was ruined behind that. Five dollars. Imagine how much you wasted on five dollars as a system. They spent more money prosecuting. It's like right now with the fines and fees. We've been working with uh, Senator Bradford to end another remaining 64 yeah. fines and fees. I think the governor signed off last year on 20. So this time, we, we, this year, we pushed a, a, a state and national campaign to get rid of these fines and fees because the, these systems are that now they got collectors and you're paying more for the collectors and the actual fees that you're getting back. There's no turnover on this. This is just a, a waste of resources, a system that's just more oppressive and it's not really helping the situation. Well, what about probation? If you're on formal probation, you have to pay for it. Um, I'm right now doing a motion to terminate because this kid shouldn't have been on formal probation, but he is, and he, he'd have to pay 7500 for being caught with a gun, no priors, um, never done anything. He made, a bad, he made a bad decision to have a gun, and he could have bought a gun, but the whole thing was the whole waiting period, body blah, and the George Floyd thing was going on, and he decided he was going to buy this gun. He shouldn't have had it, but he was in a uh, car with a friend that had was on probation, and that guy just ran a red light. They searched the car, found the gun, 
and gave him a felony with no priors, no prior record at all. And, and you know what? And, and you know what? The list and the stories go on and on and on, and it's just like overwhelming. You like you get overwhelmed with so much. And uh, but you know what though? The, the good thing is that now now we have these, these little participatory defense meetings. We have different legal organizers and different people that went through the training. You know, we bring in like about five families at a time. We give them about thirty minutes to break down progress, and then we strategize and 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 they and, and they go in phases. You know, these families all moving in phases, and we teach them how to organize, how to how to organize with their attorneys, how to collaborate with them, and 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 uh, and get the best defense and the best results because for a long time a lot of people they just rely on a, a poor attorney the attorney's gonna be overwhelmed you got to cases if you're not trying to contribute other factors or arguments that can be helpful for the case you're not really contributing to your defense and, you, and more than likely they're going to get jammed up by the system and just ran all over we have to target certain courts and certain judges like, for instance, one of my clients, he's 18 years old. He was about to go into the Marines. He did not commit two burglaries in Hacienda Heights, and he was picked up in Linwood or uh, Inglewood or something, and he's black. So he did not commit those crimes, but yet he's got a $2 million bail. I just took on his case. It's ridiculous, but Pomona does that all the time. He's in Pomona, and they do it all the time. This kid did not do it. I mean, I, I already know he didn't do it. But his mother has, um, he was at home with her, pictures of them in the driveway, time stamped on the phone on one burglary that they're trying to use something from that burglary to tie to the second burglary. He's all, he's also underage on one. And then uh, two weeks later, he's 18. That's not what they do is sit up and follow some kids and wait until they turn 18 to arrest them. Mm-hmm. But he didn't do anything. He was in maybe he said they said he was in a 7-Eleven and they rolled up on him and picked him up. But he, two million dollars. And the reason they put that excessive bail to make him they that's supposedly to make him tell on somebody else, you know, to get out. Mm-hmm. But he has nobody to tell on because he didn't do it. So it's a catch 22. I am so glad. It makes me feel good to know that there are people like you and Henry out there, you know, that are fighting for people. Because like you said earlier, so many people are getting convicted that that, that are wrongfully convicted. You know, so many people are getting the extra charges thrown thrown on them. It's not fair. It's not right. I mean, look at my... Look at my friend Daniel. He has to have an attorney, attorney, right? Right. His parents are coming up with the money, but what if they can't? He's had a public defender up to this time, and it's not been good for him. Mm-hmm. Now, look at my yeah. friend Daniel. He did 39 years, and nobody's been able to restore that wrongful conviction. He, they, it's just like, man, I'm just happy to be out. Like, I'm just going to move forward. But, like, like, like who like who can repair that damage? You know? Like, did they find out it was a wrongful? Like, was it a wrongful conviction? It was a wrongful conviction. When did he get and, out? Uh, uh, he got out through the board. He had to get out through the board sticking but by when did he get out? Oh, he got out. He's been about been about six years now, I think. Yeah. He didn't sue them because they're actually supposed to give him a certain amount per day for every day he was in that he wasn't supposed to be in. Well, see, that's the thing. He didn't get off uh, uh, through attorneys through the, uh, arguing the wrongful conviction. He, that, 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 that was his argument throughout board. And it, his argument and the, and the thing was so legit over time, the board 
couldn't even they, they said you know what we, we believe that possibly you probably were wrongfully convicted but you know what you've done your work you've done all, done all this time and we're just going to release you and, and they finally got released but he never got no compensation he never went to uh you know what I'm saying? To be compensated. and and it's like you got to take it out to court and you got to get attorneys and it's like he gets out here and we got a nonprofit that we started in there and, and I've been, you know, it was a group that we expanded in different prisons, and then he had to take care of all the different registration and all that. And so, you know, once you run a nonprofit, that's a whole beast of its own. It takes up all your time and energy, and and we miss out on deadlines and and, and opportunities to 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 file, you know. So that was that was, that was kind of a challenge at, at, at for him as well from from working with them when I was working with them. But yeah, it's crazy. I think they were supposed to tell him about that. There's an actual, so there's a way that you settle those cases because there is an actual figure for every day that you were not supposed to be incarcerated. It's like a hundred and something dollars a day, times yeah. whatever. 39 times years. 365, you know, 39, 365 times 39, you know, that's, that's what he's supposed to get. Um, and that's why people end up getting like so many millions of dollars when they've been wrongfully incarcerated. Um, because they but you have to prove to the courts, right? You have to, you have to prove the wrongful conviction through the courts and have the courts recognize the wrongful conviction before you can even get compensated. And that's where mm -hmm. the challenge is at. The courts ain't gonna recognize that. And you gotta fight them to the nail. They may or they, they may not because it's a different, it's a section 1983, a violation of your civil rights, you know? Because they took your property, which is yourself, without due process of law. They took you um, without following the rules. If they actually wrongfully, like say, for instance, they get the DNA and find out that you weren't the person who raped the person or killed the person or whatever, you were nowhere near. And then they find that the alibi evidence was there and you weren't nowhere near. They're supposed to compensate you for that. Yeah, I'm gonna have him give you a call. Uh, uh, you know, cause he did all that time, and it's just he's moved on with his life. But it's like, come on, man! Like they took the uh, they took a whole life out of you. Like you know what I'm saying? Like how can you not just uh, a legend? There's a lot of other people too. And like what you know, when you advocate, you don't advocate only for yourself. You're advocating for the other people that lie behind behind you that are voiceless to also teach them and and give them that, give 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 them that that reparation. Uh, 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 you know that that, that this, the system doesn't oh, that doesn't give unless you fight for it. The only problem there is there may be a statute of limitations problem. When you yeah. sue the government, you have to notify them within six months, or you know there's a really short timing window at least to get the ball rolling to notify them. And then if they usually reject the claim, and then you can go on and sue them. Sometimes they settle the claim, but most of the time they're going to reject it, and you sue them. But as a prerequisite to the suit. You have to notify the government that you're going to see them, or else sometimes you're barred from bringing the kids. Yeah, and so that, that's the thing the time restraints. If you missed out on the time restraints, you're asked out, you know what I'm saying? And that's what happens a lot when you get so overwhelmed with so much. And like you, you, you just can't even think straight no more because that's how the system keeps out of people. I got people that fight all kinds of different systems, you know what I'm saying? We're like, damn, though, like, man, it, it's crazy. It's crazy the way. Like rather than the systems helping you navigate these problems and resolve them in a reparative, restorative way, like they just make it more complicated. They punish you 
for other challenges you're gonna have, like transportation, like the classes. Like now that we got Zoom, some people don't have transportation. Well, hey, as long as I can see your face on the Zoom call, let's get you on this parenting plan to get you with some healthy skills. And like, I mean, at least that should be sufficient in some cases for people with those kind of issues. You know what I mean? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make exceptions. It's really black and white. It's this criteria. And if you don't follow this criteria, even though this criteria doesn't always make sense and there's a bunch of uh, layers of gray areas that are going to come up, uh, you're asked out because this is the criteria. And that's what the system does. Mm -hmm. Okay. Hey guys, I want to thank you both. Uh, we've been on an hour and a half. My gosh, it went really fast. <laughs> God, I'm really impressed. And I just think it's wonderful. Like I said, that that there's people like like you and Henry out there that that are fighting for others. I really think it's wonderful. And I'd like to have you both on again at some point to talk more with you about this stuff, if that's okay. Yeah, that's great. That's great. It'd be cool. Oh, It'd be really cool. And by the way, I am the cannabis consultant for the city of Sacramento. There you go. See, there's a link. Right you, man. We need to have another session with Rhonda out here to pick, pick, give us some game and create an opportunities from, uh, for the people that were impacted by the war on drugs. How can we create creative employment? How can we use this medicine mm -hmm. to be uh, therapeutical and mar marketable where people you know, get paid a dollar and the, and, the, and the government doesn't overtax the crap out of us? Yeah, and they make such so many restrictions and quotas. You know, each city has their own quota. When technically uh, they don't do that on other businesses, you know, because mm -hmm. um, businesses sink or swim based on whether they have customers and how the expertise of the people that run the business, you know, um, but they they don't really know that. So they figure out, oh, we're going to say there's a quota. We can only have five or 20 of these and then we can only have this many in that city. And they, obviously there were way more than that when it was illegal. So they're still going to compete with the illegal grows because they are restricting the amount of people that can get licensed and the criteria for licensing. Yeah, you know what? It's like the housing market. They put all these red tape and these barriers, and, and that's why it's important to, to, to meet with effective legislators that, that they can address this, that we have research teams to say, why are you making it so difficult, bro? Like, like the whole purpose of this was to help these people, but yet you keep them oppressed by creating all these different guidelines and restrictions and procedures and that's like wow man yeah it's so hard to buy a house you know and they gave out those loans there wasn't hardly any paperwork involved it seems like you know maybe the government should take over the home buying mm -hmm. process actually they did and that's what kind of screwed it up i took a class at Harvard, <laughs> and i found out that redlining was the government i thought that the banks had started redlining but it was actually the racist government that started redlining they told the banks to redline and so our government has a lot to answer for because they've been very racist, very misogynistic, very, how can I say this, um, genocidal. I mean, they literally tried to take whole populations of people out and they've made them so economically irrelevant that even though they're here, there's no, you know, there's nothing mm -hmm. they can do effectively because so many people are economically oppressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How can people get a hold of you, Rhonda? Um, well, uh, my website is www.dixonjusticecenter.com, all spelled out, D-I-X-O-N, justicecenter.com. You can call me at 323-641-2731. Um, my offices are in Marina Del Rey. I actually have several in L.A., but I work mostly Southern California, in Riverside, I've got some cases in San Bernardino and Orange County, some in San Diego. 
But mostly I like to try to stay concentrated in LA and I have a lot in Riverside in LA. How about you, Henry? Uh, um, my website is henrycommunityhealer.org. You can also go to communityhealers.org, uh, the website for the business, the nonprofit business. Uh, it's uh, evolving. And also uh, uh, you can email me at, at ttp tr for trauma through a traumatized perspective trainings at gmail.com. That's triple T P trainings at gmail.com. And my business number, I don't know it offhand, but uh, <laughs> just email us or hit us on uh, on Instagram, uh, a trauma through uh, TTP trainings or Henry Community Healer or uh, all of us are not Sacramento. Uh, you know, the Facebook's been hacked too. Recently, we've been getting attacked, but it's all good, you know, because the world will continue with or without social media. <laughs> Gotcha. Hey, again, thank you both for coming on. And again, like if it's okay with Rhonda, I'd like to have us all get together again because this was great. Thank you. It was a good thank round you. table to talk about this stuff. And there's so much more to talk about. There's so much more going on in the world that needs to be brought forward, you know, that people don't realize. You know what? So, um, it, it, another interesting person I'd, I'd recommend to invite, his name is Jesse de la Cruz. He's a gang expert. Uh, okay. He works in the courts. He knows a lot. Of, he does a lot of national work, uh, getting people off of gang cases and breaking down the, the, the technicalities. Right? And a lot of times, these these white gang experts say they know something, but they, they got these generic ass criteria. They're just mislabeling people and giving them additional sentences to 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 their misery. But uh, I would definitely look him up. Okay. His name is Jesse de la Cruz. He's also an author. And, uh, okay, yeah. sounds good. All right, you guys, thank you so much. I really appreciate okay. it. Thank you. Have a, good, have a good evening. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Well, that was a great show. And I, I, I really, I, I can honestly say it was serious stuff, but I enjoyed it because uh, being a crime courts reporter for as long as I, I was, I did see a lot of this stuff going on in court. So it was fascinating to me. Tomorrow's show, regular time, uh, Monday, well, Monday's tomorrow, yeah, 6.30 p.m. Pacific time, and we are going to uh, kind of stay along the same line of thoughts. Rob Tolstis, uh, I mean, Roger Tolstis is going to be on tomorrow, and he is a private investigator who has spent 30 years looking for wiretaps for people, and that's his experience, is, is wiretaps, and he goes into people's homes uh, to find out whether or not they have wiretaps or any kind of surveillance going on so he's going to be with us tomorrow and uh should be a really good show uh california haunts is non-profit so if you guys can find it in your hearts to donate so we can stay on the air and keep getting these great guests uh please donate to paypal.me at california haunts and also if you like the show please share it with five people if you didn't like the show go ahead and share it with five of your enemies we're trying to get our name out there and uh the, the numbers are starting to to, to rise and we're really excited about that so i want to thank you all for coming tonight and uh i will see you guys tomorrow let me get over the right print screen here i've been here so long uh here we go and uh i will see you tomorrow have a good one